2012. The game of Monopoly was in full swing. Dog versus Boot, Brains versus Beauty, Kenneth Williams versus Geoffrey Fairbrother, or Gladys Pugh, which was a much kinder and more realistic image, if not strictly accurate in terms of her job description. Louise hadn't intended to stay for that long. She'd managed, with the assistance of a wheelchair, to deliver Michael back to his plush suite. But once there, she'd found herself in a bit of a dilemma. He was talking quite coherently, although his eyes wouldn't open and his legs wouldn't listen to him. Some of the things he was saying were slightly odd, but then he always had been a bit odd, certainly around her. He'd recognised her voice immediately upon hearing it too, which was sweet especially after all of these years. On closer examination, she realised that what she had taken to be coherent conversation was actually some drunken language she'd never heard Michael use before. Nothing else could possibly explain the lack of legal waffle, the complete absence of any pomposity, and the large amount of Cockney rhyming slang he'd been coming out with. He was quite fun company in that sort of state, as it turned out. He had evidently forgotten that her own ancestors had been a bit handy in the old rhyming slang caper as well, though. She knew very well what a bloody nice pair of threepenny bits were, and her own had been described in similarly florid ways by rather more men than she could comfortably be proud of. But it was the first time that Michael had ever made a remark like that to her, and although she probably ought to have been deeply offended and probably tipped him headfirst from his wheelchair, she was, inexplicably, really rather flattered. He'd always looked at her strangely. Not as strangely as this expression now, though, where he looked like he was trying to back away from a jar of smelling salts. She'd caught him sneakily looking at her on many occasions in the past, even while she was still at school. Mind you, virtually every man had looked at her like that in those days, with her active encouragement. She'd been ever so slightly out of control in those days. Thank goodness Humphrey had been there or thereabouts to guide her back towards a slightly straighter and noticeably narrower path. He had even managed to save her remotely the night she'd turned up at Michael's house all those years ago. She'd been just a pawn in a much bigger game that night. It had preyed on her mind all this time. Not at the forefront, it wasn't that important in the grand scheme of her life, but it lurked always at the back of it. How, in the hour of her greatest legitimate emotional need, had she not managed to get this bloke to sleep with her? On reaching his suite, she'd had to make a decision about whether to leave Michael to his own devices or to help him inside. From a suggestive glance and accidental grope point of view, he looked completely harmless. That was enough of a reason right there for her to leave him to it and go and track down Humphrey. She was, however, supposed to be playing things cool with respect to the latter gentleman. Besides, what she really wanted Humphrey to do for her could not be done until she'd had a little chat with him, and she hadn't quite found either the words, the approach, or the courage for any of that just yet. Michael might be good for a laugh, especially in this new mood of his. If she could get him onto the subject of Humphrey, it would be but a small step away from finding out why he hadn't slept with her that night. And she could introduce Humphrey into their conversation as easy as anything, simply by asking Michael about the lady she'd seen him with earlier in the evening. If she could keep a straight face for long enough to even ask him. The merest mention of a quick game of Monopoly had seen Michael making a sudden and miraculous recovery. Indeed, he'd almost knocked her over in the rush to get his keycard in. Andy had copped a feel of her chest as he helped her regain her balance, 
So, she did still have it. She was definitely going to stay for a bit then, in that case. Michael was halfway through setting up the board before she'd even closed the door behind her. What kind of a man travelled everywhere with his own Monopoly board? Oh, it was even more impressive than that. The little tokens looked gold-plated at least. Wait, that was an insult to him. Anyone who'd gone to the trouble of getting their dog gold-plated would have gone the whole hog and forked out for the solid real deal. It was horribly ostentatious, yet it was very him. And there were no tatty yellow pound notes for her to have to dirty her pretty hands with either. It was shiny pound coins and crisp Bank of England notes. That was classy. She had to admit, he had style. He also had saliva trails across his front, which he suddenly became aware of as she stared at them. He hesitated, clearly pondering whether or not she could be trusted with all of his riches, before politely taking his leave and a clean shirt from his wardrobe and disappearing into the bathroom. The suite was vast, one of the really impressive ones. Normally, however much you paid, there would always be someone with vastly superior accommodation to you. Well, this was that vastly superior accommodation. All the same, she couldn't really imagine him getting all that much out of his cruising experience. She'd seen no sign of him whatsoever during the voyage up to now. He hadn't joined in the conga that she'd supervised yesterday. That much she definitely knew. The call had gone out for all able-bodied and fit passengers to come up to Deck 12 and join her in her attempt to organise the world's longest ever conga line at that particular latitude and longitude on a cold wet afternoon in September. Anthea hadn't come along to that either. Neither had anybody else. At least, not as a result of that first casting session. Some modification in the terms of the employment, making no mention of being either able-bodied or fit, had cobbled together a few more odds and sods. Nowhere near enough to have ever impressed Roy Castle, though. Most of them were so far removed from being described as either able-bodied or fit that the conga had proceeded more at a funeral pace, and reminding people that the next request they might have played anywhere could well be a little something by Chopin really wasn't too conducive to a nice, relaxing luxury cruise. The attempt at the record had been shelved, and the participants were subsequently defrosted down below with mugs of sweet tea. On the subject of defrosting in the areas down below, Louise was becoming just a tiny bit uncomfortable in these plush surroundings. Whatever else happened, she couldn't embark upon any sort of romantic assignation with Humphrey's own father. She just couldn't. This was the man who had made Humphrey's life a living hell for years and years and years. But then Humphrey had been far from blameless. The two men were simply too volatile a combination to exist anywhere together. On their own, they were harmless. Mixed together, they were dangerous, especially to themselves. It was interesting to speculate whether that was a specific character trait of every male member of that family, this total inability to be able to tolerate any other male relative in one's close proximity, at least not without having to pass judgment on him and or do whatever was necessary to get right on his wick. It was as well to think about things like that in advance of anything happening that was particularly pertinent to that issue. Sorry to have kept you waiting, Louise. He'd made far more of an effort than had been strictly necessary, in her opinion. A new shirt was the bare minimum she'd expected, but aftershave and hair gel struck her as being rather over the top for a platonic game of Monopoly. That made it official anyway. He fancied her.
He sat opposite her and shuffled the gold-leaf-tinted chance cards together, very slowly. I think we ought to establish one or two ground rules here, don't you? She reached out to touch his hand. He smiled. Then he screamed as her fingers tightly gripped his wrist. With her other hand, she pulled a get-out-of-jail-free card from out of his left shirt cuff. You really want to win that badly, do you? He looked ever so slightly awkward. She smiled. I'm not criticising. I was only asking. They've settled on a few utterly inflexible rules. The first person to either bankrupt their opponent or build a hotel anywhere on the board would be the winner. In Michael's mind, his hotel was open for business and he'd already taken Mr Monopoly to the cleaners for defaming it in a review on TripAdvisor. Louise had absolutely no intention of making things easy for him, though. The prize was to be the bragging rights. No small chattel, that, particularly in her possession. Michael had evidently assessed her chances of victory as being slim to none, otherwise he would never have agreed to anything like such a risky plan of action. They had needed a fair approach to the game as well, so as to ensure it would be played in the right spirit. It hadn't taken very much digging for Louise to discover that this simply meant he wanted them both to go for the financial jugular. None of this namby-pamby collecting two bob in rent every half an hour rubbish. If he couldn't buy a decent bottle of whisky with it, then it wasn't even worth bothering with. She'd agreed wholeheartedly, although her particular point of financial reference had been a large bottle of Paris Eau de Parfum. And so, the games began. Roz had grown tired of both the view and the company, which, considering that she was on her own in Anthea's cabin, looking out onto the beauty of a moonlit Irish sea, did seem to indicate one or two problems deep within her own psyche. She was more than a little worried about having to try and explain her appearance in there to Anthea as well. Nicking Sandra's key was one thing. Actual breaking and entering might well be viewed in quite a different way. Still, Anthea should have been grateful that Ross hadn't ordered one or two expensive cocktails and charged them to her while she was in there. The idea had definitely occurred to her. In fact, she'd been fighting the urge to do just that since practically the very first minute she'd gone in there. It would have been just like being on expenses, she'd decided. Making that decision had been the easy bit. To then spurn the opportunity of running up a bill at someone else's expense had been extraordinarily difficult indeed. The whole thing had been up in the air for most of the time she'd spent in the cabin. It must have been something to do with the mentality of certain public sector workers because, of course, she did work for the council, if that was not a contradiction in terms. In the end, her inherent survival instinct had persuaded her that taking on Anthea in any competitive sport might not be a very good idea, and being chased down the corridor and then subsequently overhauled and probably sat on was the very definition of a competitive event she wanted no part of. She intended to blame Sandra for letting her in there. In a straight choice between her sister's word and that of any other member of the human population, Anthea would be bound to always believe everyone but her sister, every time. It was tough on Sandra, but then it was her stupid fault that Anthea and Barney looked like getting on together like a match in a wooden house with no sprinklers. If the two sisters fell out irreparably, Sandra could always go and fold herself into Ros and Eleanor's cabin instead. That would leave Eleanor and Ros to make sure Barney did not set so much as a toe inside Anthea's cabin, while simultaneously allowing them to grill Ms Lovewell for information and do their best to deter her from having any further contact whatsoever with Mr Adams. 
She'd included Eleanor in her plans, although she hadn't seen the poor woman for a good two hours. However, in a classic example of summoning the devil with a few well-chosen words, the elder woman decided to turn up at just that precise moment. She had big news from the world of cyberspace, where the image of an unknown female chest, a chest that was currently somewhere on that cruise ship, was making headlines in every nation with free speech on five continents. There were rewards for information, and there had been proposals of matrimony. A petition had been started to make her the next Queen of England, and a six-part reality show was being mooted by every quality television channel in the business. While a topless phone-in in a mud fight was a suggestion of one or two stations of a slightly more dubious quality, on a late show every Friday night after the pubs closed. This one particular photograph had gained iconic status, but in neither that one, nor any of the other 3,000 or so similar snaps that were taken at pretty much the same time, was the woman's face visible clearly enough for anyone to be able to make a positive identification. Everyone in the world wanted to know who that woman was, and Eleanor was absolutely positive that she knew. Sandra. It had to be her. It was so utterly typical of the sort of behaviour they'd really started to come to expect from her. It was selfish and it was attention-seeking. And it was precisely the sort of thing her fellow appreciators would have given serious consideration to if they had only thought of the idea first. There was clearly money to be made in a spot of indecent exposure. Who knew? Actually, there was slightly more to it than that. Something about the series of images had, for some reason, quickly seized the public's imagination. People were blown away by the fact that, despite the world being full of wars and corruption and sleaze, and despite the fact that life was, generally speaking, a complete and utter pile of cack for the most part, there was still enough hope to make a woman feel like celebrating and getting her tits out. That bra she'd been wearing had sold out at every online outlet within ten minutes of its appearance alongside Hugh Edwards on the news at ten. There were a good many rewards on offer for the unmasking of the woman. A quick phone call to the press might just accidentally reveal one or two figures of particular relevance with regard to the figure of particular relevance that they were interested in. It would mean Sandra would have to go to ground. It would mean Sandra would have to find herself alternative emergency accommodation. That pretty much settled things then. Following Ross's advice, Eleanor decided to use email instead of any kind of ship-to-shore communications. This stuff was highly secret. They didn't want it falling into the wrong hands. Plus, an electronic trail would be utterly invaluable as proof if the chiselers tried to worm their way out of paying for the information. With any luck, the distraction caused by naming and shaming Sandra would also distract Anthea from the attentions of Barney. Eleanor made her way back to the internet cafe while Roz began packing up Sandra's belongings. They were about to go on a little exchange visit. Hopefully, they didn't suffer too much from claustrophobia. Chapter 13 Barney had been in that bathroom for 22 and a half minutes. Humphrey knew that because he'd counted every ominously silent second on his wristwatch. He'd counted some of the noisier ones too, the ones that had been accompanied by a low miserable moaning sound which was dangerously reminiscent of Barney's attempts at singing. Those had been curtailed immediately by a brisk rap of Humphrey's knuckles on the bathroom door. The best brains in engineering may well have tested the structural integrity of that ship under regular stresses and strains, 
but it seemed highly unwise to subject those same rivets to a Barney Adams vocal assault. Leastwise, not when they were in the middle of nowhere and in imminent danger of having to swim more than 10 metres to safety. Humphrey's certificate, obtained when he was 11 as a result of his quite unique doggy paddling skills, specifically expired at a distance of 10 metres. He'd done pretty much the same, sinking like a stone under the weight of all the water he'd managed to swallow during quite a hairy crossing of the school pool. He didn't much fancy taking his chances in the middle of the Irish Sea. No thank you. He'd never even found out how to put on his life jacket. Louise was meant to have been showing him a thing or two about things like that. He had managed to escape her, though, which was probably a lot more useful in terms of his own survival. He had to get out of that cabin. But how could he leave Barney, poised dangerously on the cusp of an all-out attack of caterwauling self-pity? The boy was a mess. God only knew what Anthea had done to him. The sight of Barney coming towards her had caused her to hastily make good her escape, though. And he hadn't even been singing to her at the time. Something had obviously gone severely wrong with Humphrey's plans. In theory, Barney himself ought to have been able to provide him with one or two answers. It was probably some kind of misunderstanding anyway, more than likely something caused by Sandra sticking her nose into the situation and then stirring things. Come off it. Who stirs things with their nose? Pinocchio on occasion, perhaps. Maybe Barry Manilow. But really? Her oar. She'd stuck her oar in. Much better. Much more useful, too, if Barney did somehow manage to sink them all. Humphrey was just about to knock softly on the bathroom door and give Barney a bit of a father-and-son type chat, leaving the belt and the abuse to one side, at least to start off with, when he heard scuffling sounds from outside the cabin. Quickly, he moved to position himself on the hinge side of the door. He wasn't even going to look and see who it was this time. If that door opened, it would have to be Louise who was opening it. And if it was Louise who was opening it, then she clearly had designs on opening a good deal more than just his door. His mind, possibly. And her legs, a distinct probability. If she opened that door, he would be out of there quicker than she could ever have believed possible. And if he hung around there, she would get a new insight into just how quick that could be. The door opened, very slowly. Humphrey held his breath, as well as one or two other things besides. She had a key then, the devious bag. All that rubbish about fixing him up with a better room just because she was a nice person. That had been a complete lie. That figured. Humphrey knew better than most men. If a woman does something nice for you for no apparent reason, then there is always, always going to be a reason. And in Louise's case, her reputation would still have to precede her. The woman stood in the doorway just beyond his view and peered into the room. He couldn't even see her, but he knew she was peering. He had spent long enough hiding from Anthea over the years to be able to tell she was peering, just from the weight of the silence. Not that Anthea was in any way fat. A heavy, multi-dimensional silence, laden with agenda. The sort of silence which had accompanied Anthea on her manhunts for him, especially on those occasions where she owed him an apology but had no intention of ever giving him one. Well, not an apology at any rate. From deep within the bathroom, Barney's singing voice gurgled back into zombified life. Humphrey's survival instincts were torn between their allegiances. Leaping out from his hiding place, wrenching open the bathroom door and strangling Barney would ensure the continued safe passage of the ship, 
but it would do nothing for the safety of Humphrey. Not once Louise knew where he was. He'd have to try and explain why he was hiding from her too. Just a minute though. She had broken into his cabin. She was the one with the explaining to do. She was the one needing to come up with one or two satisfactory answers. And he didn't really want to hear any of those answers. Not now. Not ever. There was always a chance that Barney's singing would send her straight into the arms of the ship's doctor very shortly anyway. Maybe that was the reason for the silence. Shell shock. Quite possibly even the start of a complete nervous breakdown. There was definitely a tune now emanating from the bathroom. The notes were all wrong, but the words were unmistakably those to all by myself. Barney might have been better off at least trying to stick more closely to the notes in the Eric Carmen version. Quite why he decided to hotly pursue the top notes as laid down by Céline Dion in her masterpiece of a rendition was difficult to say, unless he just slammed the toilet lid down painfully on something. What was certain, however, was that he sounded awful. Nothing new there, admittedly. In fact, if he had sounded awful a bit more often, as opposed to diabolical or just plain lethal, their professional association as manager and singer might have still had something of a future. Humphrey watched the interior lights flickering and came to a bold decision. He was going to have to fall on his sword here and shut Barney up, and to hell with any other consequences. After all, if the lights went, he wouldn't even know where Louise was, and that might well be infinitely more dangerous. He could show courage in the face of his enemies. Besides, there was still an outside chance that he could bang on the door to shut Barney up, and then die for safety in between Louise's legs. Holy heck. On second thought, he might just wait there for a couple of seconds first. Barney's stab at one of the very dramatic top notes somewhat forced Humphrey's hand almost immediately, although it did have the effect of rescuing his nether regions from the peril he himself had managed to put them into. Louise would have been like a dog with a bone. Or a bonio. He rushed to the bathroom door and hammered on it, commanding Barney to come out at once. He banged on it again, encouraging him to throw a bit of aftershave or something around in there first before he did open the door. Twenty-five minutes' worth of noxious gases would have to be counted somehow. He was just about to volunteer the services of his own large bottle of organza, located in his wash bag and historically proven to be more than a match for the average cloud of methane, when he happened to catch sight of Louise's face. She looked shocked. She looked horrified. She looked like Sandra. Could Barney's voice have done that to the woman? Or was there a more obvious, less dramatic explanation? Don't let him out! Sandra, what are you doing here? Humphrey started towards her in his quest for answers, but then remembered that his ex-wife would take a very dim view of him standing that close to her sister. So, for a moment, he flirted with the idea of moving even closer. Sandra would have jumped at the chance of antagonising Anthea, and Humphrey was really rather keen to know whether she would even still be jealous. Alas, he was distracted by much more important matters before he'd even reached the suburbs of Sandra's personal space. Is that Barney's key? She thought for a moment. She still had Barney's keycard in her hand, so whatever story she concocted would do well to incorporate that fact into it. Bang went her preferred option then, which was to claim that she'd been sleepwalking. Unless she could somehow have chanced upon his key in the act of walking around semi-comatose. That still wouldn't explain why it had miraculously found its way into her possession, though. What about just that? A miracle? Humphrey was daft enough to believe anything. Wait a minute. 
He actually was daft enough to believe anything. At least, anything as far as her sister was concerned. He gave it to Anthea. She told me to bring it back. That had sounded awfully convincing. In terms of adding to the innumerable ways of skinning the family moggy, it also served its purpose admirably. He would have to keep Barney away from Anthea now, and it would prevent him from ever finding out that Sandra had pickpocketing skills to rival Fagin's. It was such a shame that Barney had kept that key in his coat pocket and not in the back pocket of his trousers, though. I didn't think anyone would be in. I was just going to leave it over there on the table. After she'd gone through the bins, taken a few pictures and lifted one or two items of Barney's for purely sentimental reasons. Humphrey checked his watch, then ran a finger nervously round the inside of his shirt collar. I wasn't planning on being here, but Barney... Well, you must have heard him. She nodded. He had sounded spectacularly bad, but he was probably a bit rusty from never being allowed to perform in public these days. The last time she'd heard him sing was on Girls, Girls, Girls. The fact that the voice escaping painfully from that bathroom sounded nothing whatsoever like the voice on that was not something she immediately questioned. That would be more of a slow-burning, Arthur C. Clarke-worthy puzzler. One day, she would be lying on her back, mentally compiling a timetable that would allow her to do the washing, the ironing, and her husband's next round of packing, all within 24 hours, from that, or a very similar physical position, and the answer to that particular mystery might just leap into her mind. Until that moment, it was filed away to join the ranks of why is there always one single sock in every load of washing, and why, when you're hoovering a carpet and there's a piece of cotton that won't go, do you bend down to pick it up, and then throw it right back down again where it came from? Things to ponder. All of them. He came back in a right old state. Anthea took one look at him and then buggered off. I don't suppose you know what that was all about, do you? Now that was interesting. So she'd finally taken the hint and left Barney alone then. Ros might just shut up and leave Sandra herself alone as well now. There would be no more subtle little threats to revoke the planning permission on her extension, nor to come along and forcibly deadhead the lavender that had strayed outside of her gate and onto the public footpath. All would be right with the world. Barney would be back doing what he did best, which was very little of any real value, and Anthea would be back doing what she did best, which was moping around miserably cursing Humphrey. No doubt she was sitting in her cabin right now, doing just that. It was slightly unnerving not to know precisely where she was, particularly as Sandra and her rather sizeable mouth had conspired together to ruin her evening. Humphrey was still in one piece, though, and his culpability was far greater than hers. The man himself had questions coming out of his ears as far as Sandra was concerned. There would be no time to ask any of them, though, judging by the sounds coming from Barney's bathroom bunker. Once he'd remembered how he'd locked that door, then realised he would have to reverse the action in order to emerge once more into the cold and cruel world he'd left behind, Sandra would be out of there like a shot. What was he saying? That was A-level stuff for Barney. He and Sandra probably had time to order and then demolish a leisurely late supper. He wasn't even hungry, but that did seem like a tantalising prospect. He could use all his charms to get her to tell him anything and everything that Anthea had said about him since the divorce. Sandra had more faith in Barney than he did, clearly. She was halfway out the door already, taking with her Barney's key and the answer to why she looked and smelled like she'd showered fully clothed in tequila. Humphrey rushed to intercept her, being very careful not to actually touch her.
There was that residual muscle memory again, the instinctive recoil from any physical contact with any attractive woman. It wasn't for fear of the consequences as far as Anthea was concerned, though. Not this time. She was far too preoccupied to be bothered with mere trivia, like him getting too close to her little sister. No, he was more concerned with not setting any precedents, not when an encounter with Louise was lurking somewhere just over the horizon. No contact, not with anyone. That was the only safe way to proceed. Before you go, Sandra, just one thing. She still loves you. They blinked at one another. Sandra really did need to do something about that unlicensed cake hole of hers. As for Humphrey, he looked like an owl that had emerged very reluctantly into the sunlight. Even if that were true, I can't worry about it now. I need to know what happened between her and Barney. What did she say to him? Sandra racked her brains. She'd been at a distinct disadvantage in terms of mentally recording any dialogue for the future, since she'd been trying to listen from the bottom of a flight of stairs while picking bits of fruit garnish out of her cleavage. What she had heard from Barney's lips, though, was almost too dreadful to even recount. I don't think she said anything. Well, then he must have said something, or done something. God, he didn't try and serenade her, did he? Sandra took a deep breath. No, nothing like that. It pains me greatly to have to say it, but he told her that he worshipped the ground she walked on. She expected Humphrey to remain stoical. After all, he had encouraged the whole situation between Barney and Anthea in the first place. She expected him to possibly even offer up a word or two of criticism towards her sister, even if only in a barely perceptible whisper. What she hadn't bargained for was for him to be looking at her now quite so incredulously. Which bit of her story he had so suddenly decided to approach with total disbelief was not for her to worry about, though. Not with the door to that bathroom finally opening. Sandra disappeared, leaving nothing but the room key on the carpet and a heavy smell of alcohol in the air. Barney hadn't been crying, that was something. Anthea would have walked a million miles away from a man who cried, having first spent the equivalent of several hundred miles just walking all over him. The boy looked bewildered, which was well within his normal range of expressions, and which therefore offered up no clues as to his current state of mind. Why did she leave me, Humphrey? We were getting on so well. Humphrey gently closed the door to the cabin. It appeared to be a casual action to bring them some privacy while he once again sorted out all of Barney's problems for him, but it also had the added bonus of keeping Louise out. Time was ticking on that one, that was for sure. The escape plan he'd toyed with when he thought she'd been at the door previously was still good to go, except that he wouldn't aim for the area between her legs this time. He'd save an awful lot more time by just climbing on top of her. Blimey, Charlie. New underwear. He must get some new underwear. Some bigger underwear. Maybe they sold stuff like that on board somewhere. That went on the list of things to attend to as a matter of urgency, along with Louise. Not that he had any intention of attending to her in any way, shape or form. It would undoubtedly be urgent, though, if he did. His underwear and associated discomfort did seem to be a problem that could be very much laid at her door. It was a better prospect altogether than getting anything laid at his. Boxer shorts. He might try those for a little while. I think you were getting on a bit too well, actually, Barney. How do you mean? Well, did you try to pay her any compliments at all? Anything that might just have been misinterpreted, perhaps? Certainly he'd paid her a compliment. 
When he'd locked the door in the gent's toilet and then forgotten how to get out again, he genuinely thought he was done for. A life wasted, with nothing to show for it, except for that most magnificent woman waiting faithfully for him to return to her. He'd promised himself that if he did ever see her again, he would tell her exactly how he felt about her, which was precisely what he had done. I told her I worshipped the ground she walks on. But what's wrong with that? I was speaking from the heart, you know. He placed his hand on his chest rather theatrically. Unless he was Doctor Who, his heart certainly wasn't over there. Mind you, it might end up there once Anthea was finished with him. Humphrey unwrapped the top of a packet of fruit pastels and offered the first one to Barney. He looked decisive, safe and secure in the knowledge that the purple one was his only option. The horrors of the jelly tots had proved already that this was a man who needed limited choices and a firm hand. And if that wasn't Anthea's perfect partner, then surely such a creature could not possibly exist in this solar system. He did, however, have an awful lot to learn about women. Even regular women, who did tend to exhibit some brief flashes of straight-down-the-line predictability. That would be but a mere foundation course in preparation for the real challenge of trying to understand Anthea. As far as that went, perhaps he was actually blessed in having limited mental capacity. It cut down the amount of processing power he would undoubtedly waste trying to second-guess Anthea's reaction to anything. You didn't actually say that to her, then, did you? In those words? Barney had now moved into the realms of complete confusion, although, again, this was well within his normal operations. What colour did she go, Barney? Barney looked vaguely into the distance, very much like he had done so artistically for his music video. This time he was not pondering the issue of how long he could comfortably go without blinking. He was clearly overwhelmed by the barrage of questions that seemed to be attacking him from every direction. Humphrey began to rummage through the contents of his tuxedo jacket pocket. Ah, thank goodness. There it was. Yes, he'd had this custom made as a treat to himself around about the time of his first wedding anniversary. It had travelled with him everywhere ever since. Show me the shade, Barney. Before them was a colour chart, from titanium white to scarlet, calibrated faintly and very uniquely. Shocked, read the description for white. Apoplectic, read the one adjacent to the rather fetching red riding hood shade of crimson. There was a sinister-looking gap up there, past apoplectic, and Barney was pointing to it. Good grief. He had managed to push her to the absolute limit. Humphrey himself, even while boarding at the doghouse, had never taken Anthea to those levels. His colour chart would need a spot of augmentation. Actually, the colour of that fruit pastel Barney was chewing would probably be a good starting point. He could still make a small fortune if he ever wanted to go into the mass production of these charts. Each woman was unique in many ways, but for overreaction and temper, Humphrey was convinced the model could be pretty much standardised. He could make it double-sided, too. That's where he could put down the approximate escape times relating to each of the various shades of ire. Naturally, once the emotions had reached the rather more critical levels, the only speed of escape would be something faster than light. To travel back in time, in fact, and not do whatever it was that had pissed her off so incredibly in the first place. He would also be sure to save some space for a few key phrases, some of those cracking things a woman will say to a man but will not mean. Obviously he couldn't fit them all on there, or it would cost him a fortune in ink. No, just the more common ones. Yes, of course you can go down the pub, for instance, would appear alongside its more accurate alter ego. Take one step towards that front door, buster, and I'll kill you. 
while an apparently jovial, of course I don't mind you talking to other women, would be forced to reveal its true identity as an, if I catch you even so much as looking at another woman, I'll kill you. They were loads. Actually, most of them seemed to have the same meaning. No. That combined with grave personal risk to the man, of course. Perhaps he ought to just bung in an advert for the nearest undertaker and have done with it. Barney truly didn't have a clue what had hit him. This was a man who had faced riot police by the van load, and yet here he was, reduced to a quivering and bemused wreck by Humphrey's very own ex-wife. The pride Mr Lovewell felt for her at that moment was unparalleled. He might have been tempted to send her a compliment or two himself had she happened to be standing there. He would have been a lot more careful in the way he went about it than Barney, though. All right then, Sonny Jim. Let's tackle this step by step, shall we? Barney heaved a sigh of somewhat misplaced relief. Humphrey intended to toss him a rope ladder and help him from his frying pan, but he was going to make sure he then used that pan to dull Barney's senses sufficiently enough that he wouldn't notice things were getting a little too hot to handle. Not until it was far, far too late anyway. Right then, Barney. First things first. You told Anthea that you worship the ground she walks on, correct? Barney nodded. I see. And you would be able to tell precisely where she had placed her dainty size eights. How exactly? Barney stopped nodding, totally unsure as to what it was Humphrey was trying to get at. Have you ever driven in the inside lane of the M25, Barney? Barney shook his head. No? You've never found yourself being forced into following a set path in the road because your wheels just happen to have fallen into the grooves made by heavy, articulated lorries? You can even see them if you look carefully. Humphrey paused. Barney stayed motionless. Heavy ones, Barney. Very heavy ones. The younger man was horrified. That wasn't what I meant. I didn't mean she was heavy. That wasn't what I meant at all. Humphrey kicked the wall in exasperation. Oh, for God's sake, man, she won't give a monkey's what you meant. She'd only care about what you said. You take it from me, Barney. Once you're involved with a woman, the only person who knows what you mean is her anyway. Don't fight it. And for the love of Christ, don't get yourself involved in any comment with any kind of weight or age-related angle. Personally, Humphrey had always been rather of the opinion that there was some kind of invisible scrambling device that existed somewhere between a man's lips and a woman's ears. Beautiful and well-meaning words would leave from one end, but would arrive at their destination twisted and completely out of context and, as often as not, completely repackaged into the form of the unfortunate male speaker's own death warrant. What about up to the point where you called her fat? How were things going up to then? The boy smiled. They were going just wonderfully, Humphrey. I was being nice and charming. I was a bit nervous at first, you know, but then I just imagined I was talking to my mum. Your mum? So he called her old as well. He was lucky he was still in one piece. Yeah, you know, someone I respect and admire. And someone I'm, well, just a little bit afraid of. I see. And how many mums do you need exactly? Because I make that three at the last count. I haven't even got one. Yeah, well, you look like my real mum a bit more. But you're really much more like my dad. Humphrey glowed with pride. So he was a strong and confident figure who Barney looked up to and respected and admired then, was he? a nice thing to say. 
It was because Humphrey had always let him find his own way in life, had never passed judgment. He'd never tried to turn him into something he could never be, purely to enhance his own standing in life either. And he always made sure he had time for him, no matter how much of a pain in the arse he was. That was a father. No, that was a dad. I mean, you know, because you're soft. Humphrey turned away. That sounded like something Anthea might have said to him while discussing the hellish nightmare that had been their sex life. Soft? It would be interesting to see how soft Barney thought he was if he started unbuckling his belt. He'd soon see how hard he was then. He'd get the respect of the little git then. Wow. What a legacy. He'd been so desperate not to become like Michael in any way whatsoever that he'd plunged headfirst into something even worse at the opposite extreme. That was why Barney wanted to leave him. Because Humphrey was useless, that was why. He should have pushed him more, steered him in the right direction once or twice. He was doing it now, right enough, but it was far too little and far too late. It was more than Michael had ever done for him, though. Oh, he'd been good at the pushing and the steering, although not so good at charting a decent course and keeping up the morale of his crew. So much so that each little mutinous event always seemed to take him by surprise, and mutiny had been very severely dealt with. There should have been tolerance and a mutual respect for one another. That belt would never have found gainful employment in a violent sense, not under those conditions. If only there had been something else that his father could have offered. But there hadn't. Humphrey had offered even less to Barney, as hard to believe as it was. If Michael had captained a potentially impressive ship, Humphrey himself had been in command of some kind of pedalo. Not even solely in command, either. Barney, by turns, was either pedalling against him or putting his feet up and letting Humphrey do everything on his own, up to and including moping miserably in the corner of their cabin while waiting for Humphrey to bail him out of trouble, yet again. And Barney and his water wings were planning on abandoning ship anyway the day after bloody tomorrow when he naffed off with his new manager. And yet here Humphrey was, still doing his best for him. Or at least, still trying to ensure that Barney and Anthea got together in some way before the ship reached Scotland the day after tomorrow. Come to think of it, considering how miserable she could, and probably would, potentially make his life, it really couldn't be claimed that Humphrey was doing his best for him at all. He was doing all this for himself. He was selfish, and he was calculating, and he wanted Anthea back on his terms, and nobody, nobody whatsoever was going to stop him. And God, he turned into Michael. Listen, Barney, do you want her? Barney nodded. More than anything. Apart from to be really famous, to own a fleet of fancy cars, to be really rich and have people lining the streets worldwide, begging for his autograph and crying at his feet. It didn't seem like quite the right time to actually qualify the statement with all that. Humphrey would know anyway. He always knew just what he meant, just what he needed. Barney was certainly going to miss him. He would make sure to always mention how much he owed him in all of his press conferences and chats with world leaders, though. He probably wouldn't mention Humphrey's role in the making of that song, the thing that had thrust him into the public's perception in the first place. And he might not even mention Humphrey at all, not if his new manager didn't want him to. Still, he would always be grateful to him, especially if he could convince Anthea to give him just one more chance. 
Just one more chance. That's all he would need. He wasn't ever going to upset her ever again. He was going to do whatever she wanted and he was going to go wherever she said. Provided she wanted to go to the sort of places where people lined the streets begging for his autograph and crying at his feet. Humphrey knelt down beside him in an act of almost total submission. That was the sort of thing Barney was looking forward to, only on a much wider scale. With Anthea by his side, there would be no girls to have to fight off, no floozies cashing in on his celebrity. Not unless they were either incredibly brave or incredibly stupid, or probably both. Anthea would cut down on his security costs too, because she could do the job of six burly minders quite easily. Not that she was fat. It would just be the best bits of fame, the best table at the best restaurant, with Anthea, the quick call from BBC Breakfast for a valuable soundbite after the latest global dictator had bitten the dust, a bum that would be so vital to the world's finances that it could drag whole economies from recession on its own. Barney, I'm going to give you what you want. Your freedom, from me anyway, and a glowing reference to your next working partner. I'll even hand that song over to you. That would be a blessed relief in itself. Even Stock, Aiken and Waterman had a few tracks in their back catalogue that should never have seen the inside of an hour price top 40. Nothing by Banana Rama, obviously. Humphrey would defend those ladies to the hilt, whatever the issue. Getting that song off his conscience would be the easiest part of their whole arrangement. The words to it had been dredged from some tortured inner being who had no place in modern society. Not unless he was equipped with a bum like Barney's. People who were equipped with bums like Barney's could literally get away with anything. Except, presumably, when they tried it on with somebody like Anthea. What about Anthea? Humphrey contemplated his colour chart for a moment before handing it over to Barney. For heaven's sake, don't let her see that. But if you do, you better make sure you blame me for it. Okay? Barney froze then defrosted a smidgen, and then refroze again. It was like a hailstone in a thundercloud. He didn't know what to say, but most of that was because he wasn't quite clear on what was happening. Silence was probably best. Better to look like a fool than to open your gob and confirm it. Humphrey had always told him that. And the slightly amended version, where it was better to look like a trained expert in the art of torture than to open your gob, then start singing and confirm it. You better get some sleep, son. I want you up and at him first thing in the morning. We're going to rehearse something that will knock that woman's socks off. And Humphrey needed to get at least one of his problems nicely tucked up in bed and out of his hair in order to be able to actually come up with something that fitted that description in the first place. With the sort of horror that floods people's bodies when they sit at the top of a roller coaster ride and suddenly have second thoughts about what they're doing, he realised he would still have to find out a great deal about the arrangements of the following evening from Louise. Well, that was one meeting he had no intention of attending without at least two dozen impartial witnesses. He grabbed a pen and some paper and the rest of his fruit pastels and finally made his escape from the cabin. Chapter 14 He'd just been past go, doubling his available ready cash in the process, and he'd been rejuvenated by an extremely audible pep talk to himself outside on the balcony, plus the opportunity to take advantage of Louise's jail sentence. 
What he hadn't done was reach for the whiskey bottle. He really was trying to impress her, in which case now was her chance. I was very surprised to see you at my little singles event earlier on, particularly as he hadn't even been invited. Yes, it wouldn't normally have been my thing, you're quite right, but once I knew you had invited me. What a stroke of luck that he was such a convincing liar. And God bless her for filling in one or two of the gaps from his evening. He held her gaze as she liberated the two solid gold dice that held all of her chances of an early parole. He held her gaze with more intensity to make sure she didn't notice the double six that had just landed on the board in front of them. He'd certainly noticed it out the very corner of his eye. He held her gaze powerfully, almost forcefully, as his fingers reached for hers, accidentally on purpose upending one of the sixes as he did so. She might wonder why he now had hold of her hand, it was true, but she would be doing it from a windowless cell between Pentonville Road and Pall Mall. His own throw of the dice saw him winning a beauty contest. Quite right too, even if the prize money wasn't up to much. Who was that woman you were with? What woman? Had he been talking to a woman? His hands reached immediately for his wallet. It was still there. She couldn't have been much of a woman then, that's all he could say. He tossed the dice casually back into their solid gold cup and swung them around gently, playfully. From a quick calculation, he was in no immediate financial danger from anything those dice might come up with. But what he really didn't want was a three. A three would give him free parking. Big deal. The dice fell and, almost at that same instant, Louise began to suffer the most horrendous coughing fit. Michael reacted gallantly, abandoning the board and all its contents to rush off and get her a glass of water. She'd be impressed by that anyway. There was no need to mention that his concern for her welfare had been motivated mainly by a selfish desire not to have to explain the presence of her dead body on his premises. When he got back to the table, her cough seemed to have been cured. Michael surveyed the board. No, she hadn't done anything dodgy. She didn't seem to have cheated at all. He would have done in those circumstances. He knew that for absolute certain. Louise was obviously different. She was honest and forthright. She had a job, a career even. And she was madly in love with Humphrey. Always had been. Bloody Humphrey. He sat down, ready to resume the game. That's when he noticed the two and the one. Free bloody parking. He gave Louise his most penetrating Old Bailey stare. She shrugged her shoulders. Thanks for the water. Who was the woman? Why did she care? And why couldn't she enunciate her words properly? She was hiding her face behind her hands like some silly little schoolgirl. A flood of memories poured forth from every corner of his mind. He couldn't remember what had happened to him earlier that evening, but he could evidently remember every smile he'd ever given Louise over the years. There weren't too many smiles, in truth, but that had to be because she was forever dragging Humphrey into every one of their conversations. He had, in fact, been forced to provide the most unlikely of shoulders to lean on, especially that last time, on the night of Humphrey's engagement. That should have been the perfect time for Michael to have told her how he felt about her. Yet she'd made that completely impossible by continuing to go on and on and on about that idiot. Michael? Yes? The woman? Damn it, he didn't bloody know. 
And now Louise had gone and got herself a double bloody two. Parole and the keys to Northumberland Avenue. That would complete her pink set. She had plenty of money over there for a spot of property development too. Well, not if he could help it. Yes, she was rather attractive, wasn't she? At least he had distracted her long enough for him to be able to change one of those twos to a one. However, he had hoped to have distracted her by perhaps invoking just a touch of female jealousy. He had not expected her to spit a mouthful of water out all over him. It was not exactly ladylike. Do you see Humphrey very much, Louise? That was the rest of the water gone. Well, she wasn't going to be getting any more, and he wasn't getting change for her, not again. She seemed to find the whole thing highly amusing, which was more than he did. She wouldn't find it so funny in a minute when he built a hotel on Mayfair. No, I haven't seen him for years. All right, so it was a lie. A little white lie, a fib. Hedging your bets, that was another name for it. Humphrey was still her number one target, but it couldn't hurt to have someone like Michael in reserve. Even if he was a cheating and conniving old git, who had just pointed out the beautiful moonlight to her so he could brazenly manipulate the dice. Wait a minute, how could he have got to Mayfair from there? And where had he suddenly found the money to build a row of houses and a hotel on it? Something wasn't right somewhere. Oh well, that was the end of the game then. One more turn and she could have been walking out of prison with her head held high, albeit 50 quid lighter in the pocket. She would have landed on Northumberland Avenue. Whatever it may have taken, she would have made sure she landed on Northumberland Avenue and then the bragging rights would have been hers. Humphrey would have loved her for that. He would have done anything for her had she achieved that. Michael savoured his victory for all of five whole seconds. He had already reached for the whisky bottle and performed his trademark little punch by this time. Only when he realised Louise was staring at him in some disbelief did he attempt to belatedly rein himself in. The fact that he had cheated in order to secure himself that victory wouldn't weigh particularly heavily on his conscience. The fact that his cheating had drawn a rather promising evening to a close, though, that was totally unforgivable. She was already on her feet and heading for the door. He checked his wallet again. It was still there. He had only one choice left to him, whether or not to pour himself that whisky. Is winning really that important to you, that you have to cheat your way to victory? What about you? You recovered pretty well from being at death's door with that choking fit. It was true. They both knew it. They were both as bad as each other. Michael put the bottle down in an unmistakable message to Louise. He meant business. Another game? No, I don't think so. Well, perhaps you'd have dinner with me then, before we reach Southampton. I mean, subject to your work commitments. Just dinner. We can talk about Humphrey if you want, I don't mind. Talk about Humphrey? His arch nemesis? Not to mention his drinking companion of earlier in the evening. He was prepared to sit through an entire meal and let her talk about Humphrey. He must really fancy her. Are you still married? In name only. I was deserted many, many years ago. As a matter of fact, you were of great comfort to me during that rather painful time in my life. Louise wouldn't remember any specific details that might have confirmed that. Of course she wouldn't. God, that boy must have spent his life blindfolded if he couldn't see how wonderful this girl was. 
But he wasn't there now, was he? He had quite literally missed the boat. I have something every girl wants, Louise. Really? She severely doubted the accuracy of that particular statement, unless Harry Styles' telephone number had somehow found its way into his possession. Hang about, he was moving closer. He'd obviously mistaken her look of disbelief to be one of encouragement. The only activity she would have been happy to encourage him in at that precise moment was in taking an immensely long walk off an immensely short pier. And she was sticking to that story too. You are a very handsome woman, Louise. I don't expect that pathetic boy of mine ever told you that, did he? Well, of course he hadn't. Nobody with an ounce of common sense between their ears would ever dream of referring to a woman like her as handsome. Handsome women were built like railway stokers. They could drink a can of strong lager in one go and then crush the empty tin under their armpit. To be called a handsome woman was the only compliment an ugly woman could ever hope for. Surely she was better than that. Is that supposed to be a compliment of some kind, Michael? Because you do realise you are in fact suggesting that I'm ugly. There, you would have him on the back foot so quickly his Achilles would snap. Except that arguing semantics with a successful and ruthless lawyer was rather different from outwitting any of her other half-dozen or so admirers. A half-dozen? Who was she trying to kid? There was a ready reckoner in her head that kept the same unsociable hours she did, and yet she was still trying to lie to herself. Don't be absurd. Ugly women don't listen to compliments anyway. That had sounded particularly masterful and dominant, at least in his head. He could carry all that off with almost no effort, of course, owing to the fact that he was successful at everything he chose to set his mind to. And that even included catching hold of the tail end of that sentence himself before she could, and then affixing to it something hopefully less inflammatory. Not that such a consideration is in any way relevant to you. Amazingly enough, it seemed to have done the trick. He had planned on translating the whole thing into Latin, if necessary, in order to impress her. And if that still hadn't worked, he was simply going to show her the collection of precious metals fighting for space in the credit card section of his wallet. That was about the best he had to offer, though, in terms of romance. For heaven's sake, he'd put the top back on a bottle of whiskey for her, had he not? That was fairly romantic. He'd have thrown the damn thing overboard for her, if she'd asked him to. He would have sent £500 worth of liquid heaven straight down to Poseidon with his compliments. If only she'd asked him to. That woman had occupied his thoughts for years. Decent thoughts. Sanitised thoughts. Sometimes the only thoughts worth bothering with in the emptiness of his own existence. She was one remarkable woman. Louise was lost in the wilds of a dilemma. A battle of heart overhead or vice versa, with a great deal of interference coming from various other sections of the crowd, in particular those located in the cheap seats, immediately adjacent to her dress circle. She needed Humphrey to at least discuss one or two things with him. Can I get back to you later, perhaps? Michael bristled visibly at her audacity. She was supposed to have been hedging her bets. There was room to manoeuvre. That sounded rude, didn't it? I do apologise. Listen, let me take a rain check on the dinner. A postponement, nothing more. He began to carefully pack up his game, evidently wanting an excuse to keep his hands busy. It never ceased to amaze Louise how much self-confidence she could muster when the chips were down. She didn't curl up in a corner and mope. 
She attacked, using the weapons she knew from experience would be the most effective. I did enjoy our game. Maybe next time you'll let me be on top though, hmm? Michael Lovewell QC, brilliant advocate and ruthless entrepreneur, found himself totally devoid of an answer. His verbosity, his own most deadly weapon, had completely and utterly failed him. He merely nodded at a speed of eight to the bar. The bar? That lot would never believe it was even him. To hell with him anyway. This woman was flirting with him. He was usually the one in complete control of things, but Louise had seized that from him and was intimating that she might be up for seizing quite a bit more besides. He wanted dates, he wanted times, appointments fixed in his diary that he could stare at and pinch himself over until the moment he could score them through. He wanted to be able to move, to go and find his diary. He wanted to be able to speak so that perhaps she might find it for him. Louise watched merrily as the effects of her words took its toll upon him. Her sexuality, that was one of her deadliest weapons. It wasn't her preferred one of choice, however. The use of that one on its own always cheapened her and stripped her of her power alongside her defences and usually most of her clothes. Humphrey had taught her a different way all those years ago. Boosting a man's ego, that was the way to do things. Men were a lot more receptive to compliments than the average woman, and they didn't tend to analyse them too much either. It was simply a question of working out which particular aspect of themselves they were most proud of. Hence, any remark from within a broad spectrum ranging from My, my, you mean to tell me you can really write your own name on the pavement in urine after 16 pints of cider? That's just amazing! To You've got every single edition of Rail magazine that's ever been printed. Wow, what unbelievable dedication! Could achieve some quite spectacular results. It was simply a question of massaging the right bit of a man's ego. And in Michael's case, she had an immense amount of material to work with. I will be back. She took her fingers for a little stroll up his tie. He wasn't saying much. I love that you always want to win, Michael. It's very attractive, believe me. Obviously, he would believe her. She had zeroed in on probably the one thing that made him who he was. And it wasn't even a particularly nice character trait to have to focus on. Far better if he'd kept gerbils or adopted stray cats. There was kindness in him, though, somewhere. Humphrey hated him, and that was quite understandable. But their relationship had been derailed predominantly by Humphrey himself and those ridiculous attempts to get his father's attention. That had continued right up to that very evening, culminating in an actual queasy, quasi-romantic date with the poor unsuspecting bloke. There was no denying, it was hard not to feel a great deal of sympathy for the man. The only problem was, Michael Lovewell QC was very different to the sort of men she usually flirted with. Her targets did tend to be wealthy, and they did tend to be successful, but they didn't know her. They had no history with her, not like Michael. And that was the incredibly dangerous thing that she'd somehow forgotten to take into consideration. She had just admitted he was a winner. She had just admitted she found him attractive. She had just, in fact, invited him to make the next move. And it did seem to be an invitation he intended to embrace with both arms. He walked confidently towards her, radiating more arrogance with every step. How about best of three?
Chapter 15 It had been a very long time since she could honestly have said she was this pleased to see Sandra. In fact, no, strike that, she had never been this pleased to see Sandra. If only there was a way of attracting her attention, though, without also drawing the attention of John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was. It was too much to hope her sister might just chance to saunter over and find her there, hiding pathetically behind the grand piano. They'd never been close enough to have shared any kind of telepathic bond, and Sandra wasn't close enough now to even be able to wave to. That was typical of Sandra. She never did anything to help anyone, not unless she had to. And now, of all the other comfortable chairs in the grand lobby, she decided to sit in the one directly adjacent to John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was. Just to really piss Anthea off. The evening had been a disaster. It always would have been, of course, even with the rather exciting and exhilarating start to it. That had simply made the fall back to her measurable normality much harder, that was all. Everything was Humphrey's fault, it had to be. No, it was Sandra's fault for mentioning him. Things had been going all right up to then. Things had been going better than all right up to then. She had been escorted around that ship by one of the most attractive men around. That bum, yes, that was certainly worthy of admiration. His real attraction, however, was the fact that Sandra liked him. She liked him, and she couldn't have him. That was one hell of an attraction right there. But Sandra had even put the kibosh on that by telling her all about Humphrey and putting that nasty little element of doubt in her mind. It had been deliberate, too. She really was a bitch. And yet, Anthea felt rather cheered by her presence, particularly as life didn't seem to be a bed of fragrant roses for Sandra at the moment, either. Karma had a way of getting you, it seemed, one way or another. Listen, where's my stuff? Having discounted all improbable scenarios that involved her either talking to herself or to an imaginary friend, Anthea realised her sister was having a rather heated discussion with someone on her mobile phone. That was going to cost her a fortune, that was, using that in the middle of nowhere. Good. She could more than afford it. She was doing what all mobile phone users habitually seem to do, shouting at the top of her voice. With any luck, being sat next to half a boring conversation delivered at full volume would encourage John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was to naff off, taking whatever it was he was so engrossed in with him. It was purely by the grace of a rather hefty American passenger that Anthea had managed to evade him in the first place, as she'd been gloomily taking a circuitous route back to her cabin to resume her evening's word-searching festivities. They were destined to be fireworks at least when that cow of a sister of hers skulked back there. She'd seen John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was heading towards her in the grand lobby. Well, she hadn't been able to see his face on account of that huge pile of stuff he was carrying, but she just had this awful feeling that it was indeed him. By an amazing stroke of good fortune, though, he had then somehow ended up on a collision course with this American woman. As a result of her inertia and his paying no attention whatsoever to where he was going, the two had collided. Amidst the ensuing confusion and the spurious claims of whiplash, Anthea had used the woman as cover in order to dive to safety, rather spectacularly, behind the piano. Her geriatric one-time admirer had succeeded in dropping whatever it was he'd been carrying, and far from apologising to the woman he'd so suicidally crashed into, he'd been more preoccupied with gathering his bunch of papers back up again. They were clearly important to him, 
but Anthea had been too far away by then to make out exactly what they were. However, other people had stopped to help him, and from the expressions on their faces, it was obvious that they were seeing something pretty remarkable. She'd been intrigued. There was no denying it. Listen, I want my stuff back in that cabin by the time I get back up there. And I don't give a stuff if you do come and paint double yellows right down the middle of my driveway. Anthea used a bit more deduction. Sandra was obviously talking to Roz, a woman who abused the powers of office even more shamelessly than Caligula. She was quite good at this detective lark. She was well suited to it too. They all had a gimmick, whether it was sucking on a lollipop or sporting a wax moustache or drinking pints of best bitter and doing the crossword. She could pretty much cover all those bases in one super detective, injecting her own inimitable style into proceedings. Instead of the crossword, she could do a word search. Instead of a lollipop, she could bite the heads off a few gingerbread men. The best bitter, well, that was nothing a spot of lemonade couldn't make palatable. And the less said about that wax moustache, the better. Oh, about time too. John or Jim or whatever the hell his name was appeared to have finally got the message. Was it too much to hope that he might leave one of those bits of paper behind so she might be able to see what everyone else had been so impressed by? Yes, of course it was. You stole her key? You must be mad. You want to watch yourself anyway, you know, because she will not be in a very good mood. Well, because I got rid of her. She's completely off the scene. No, I can't give you any more details than that at the moment. Well, because she's just crawling out from behind the piano. I don't think Auntie is very pleased with us, and Sandra's not very happy either. Oh well, not to worry. We'll be rid of the both of them once I'm through with this email. Roz watched in some personal discomfort as Eleanor laboured over the typing of the thing with one finger, and even that digit appeared to be on some kind of ghost slow. Whoever she was writing to would have packed up and gone home at the rate she was going. Can't you at least use two fingers? Eleanor did just that. She could be so vulgar on occasions. It must have been her age. Anyway, you can talk. You didn't do your job at all. That wasn't strictly true. Rose had got rid of Sandra's luggage and managed to cram it all neatly into their little shoebox. Then she'd moved it all back again. And no, it wasn't because she was frightened of Sandra's sister. Much. Well, it did sound like she was getting a pretty hard time from Anthea. I felt a little bit guilty. Eleanor looked up at her, wide-eyed. You felt guilty? Don't you work for the council? Rose nodded. If that is not a contradiction in terms. Eleanor was becoming rather concerned now. Rose had never delivered her own punchline before. What about the key? Are you kidding me? I left that stuck in the door, so that Anthea will assume she was stupid enough to leave it there. That was the first rule of public sector life. Always, always put the blame on someone else. And if you can't find anyone else to blame, then you always, always create an appropriately convenient job description and then employ someone new to blame instead. Anyway, I did feel a little bit guilty about causing problems between them. It didn't seem very fair somehow. More to the point, it had suddenly occurred to Ross that the two of them might have to share Anthea's cabin with the woman herself instead. And nothing, not even a night spent with Eleanor in the floating equivalent of Little Ease, could possibly be worse than that. It was all very well mouthing off and claiming to want to know real and intimate details of Barney, 
it was quite another thing to have such a thing on the imminent horizon. Besides, Sandra was the one who had ruined Anthea's life. She was the one who ought to suffer for it. They wouldn't even be able to offer her sanctuary in their cabin, not unless all three of them fancied sleeping standing up. Eleanor read back what she had so laboriously typed. It wasn't all that substantial in its content. She was surely the slowest one-finger typist in history. I'm feeling a bit guilty myself as it happens. I mean to say, she may be a lazy, unreliable mare, but she is still one of us. We could ruin her life. Ros looked at her with some disdain. If Eleanor had possessed the ability to type an email properly, they could have ruined it already by now, and it would all be out of their hands. She looked over her elderly companion's shoulder and surveyed the damage to Sandra's reputation that had been done so far. It was good, she had to admit that. It was definitely evasive. It promised much, yet delivered almost nothing. Had Eleanor ever thought of a job in local government at all? Who are you going to send this to? Eleanor had that all planned. She intended sending it to every editor, every newsroom, every social network that she could think of. Sandra's soul would go to whichever devil was prepared to offer the greatest reward. Money wasn't necessarily what she was after either. She wanted recognition, and not for herself. If her own name got into the papers, her husband would find out she'd been lying to him about her whereabouts all these years. Which, of course, she had, but there was no reason why he should ever have to find out about it. Rosie's name couldn't very well appear in it either, not while she was supposed to be all aboard some kind of taxpayer-funded junket. Not unless she wanted to find herself the subject of a two-page article in Private Eye. The name of the Barney Adams Appreciators. She wanted that out there. Damn it all. The Barney Adams Arse Appreciators. There, she'd said it. What was Humphrey Lovewell going to do? Sue her? They'd seen it first, and they were proud of their long-standing association with it. So there. I haven't actually named her yet, though, as you can see. Yes, I did see that. You've said almost nothing of any value at all. Eleanor seemed hurt. Roz rushed to qualify her remark. No, no, that's a compliment. As emails go, yours ticks every box there is. It practically invites a response, purely so the recipient can find out what the hell it was all about in the first place. Eleanor smiled. Being congratulated on her flair for writing gobbledygook by a senior management figure in the local public sector... That made her feel extraordinarily proud. I wasn't going to name names just yet in any case. After all, we hold all the cards. The information we have is dynamite. The two women each took a sip of their decaffeinated coffees and contemplated their current situation. Sandra's bust was an international phenomenon. The whole world wanted her name and her appreciated colleagues were more than prepared to give it. But the immediate consequences in the end of such a betrayal did not seem to justify the means. Sandra would no doubt be spirited away to appear on chat shows and in photo shoots. Before long, there would be stories in the papers tearing her private life to shreds. There would be interviews with her family, and her friends too, if they could find any. And heaven help them all, her involvement with Barney Adams was certain to be unearthed with only minimal digging. Their cover would be blown. That simply couldn't happen. I'll tell you what, Eleanor, why don't we just dump that email in the recycle bin and leave things well alone? Eleanor was completely in agreement. There was much to be said for letting sleeping dogs lie. 
especially in the case of that particular dog. Gosh, there were an awful lot of places an email could end up going. The recycle bin was only one of them. And it would definitely have been the most appropriate place to put that particular email, still unfinished but left tantalisingly in a state of suspense. The name of the woman in that photograph is... Well, at least the six dozen people she just accidentally sent it to would be absolutely none the wiser for having received it. Humphrey's piece of paper was as devoid of any ideas now as it had been when he first sat down. Unless a collection of doodles illustrating various methods of execution through the ages could form the basis for Barney's act the following evening. His face was already an integral part of the designs in any case, or so it appeared. Humphrey checked his watch. They weren't big on letting you know what the time was around there. Perhaps that was because they wanted folk to relax and not worry about the time. That did seem to be sound, well-thought-out advice. Had Humphrey looked at his watch at a minute to midnight, the feeling of panic he was just beginning to experience would have remained safely at bay. A minute to midnight would still have provided that vital comfort blanket of tomorrow. Unfortunately, a quarter past midnight, as it apparently was now, meant that the act he had not even begun to create yet would be needed tonight. He was, of course, at the mercy of a number of disadvantages. Chief amongst them was the fact that he'd still not been apprehended by Louise. Far from feeling relieved about that, he'd come to the horrible realisation that the longer he remained on the run, the less likely it was that he would be able to concentrate on any of the arguably more pressing matters he seemed to have overall responsibility for. She was either toying with him, or she really did have no interest in him. He thought back to some of her overtly sexual moves of the previous evening and cursed his own naivety. She was toying with him, all right. Even thinking along those lines had caused a radical shift in the tone of his doodles. A set of stairs, a sword, and a gravestone. That was a pretty accurate depiction of the last experience he'd had, which could have been deemed even remotely sexual, that quite bizarre evening with Anthea in their old bedroom. Had he not fled down those stairs rather than stir up any of that same old, same old crap with her? And would he not have fallen on that sword and ended up beneath that gravestone rather than remind her that he had ever been in that bedroom in the first place? He doodled a lifeboat then as he was thinking that. That might well turn out to be a tip-top idea, actually. After all, there were only so many stairs he could descend in this current situation to try and make good an escape from Louise. Even drowning might be a better bet in the long run. That was another problem that was preventing him from coming up with a bit of Humphrey Lovewell brilliance. He had absolutely no idea what he was supposed to be working with. It was fortunate in some ways that he was starting from a completely blank canvas, although Barney was never anything but one of those. It did put the pressure on a bit, but then Humphrey always performed reasonably well under pressure. In exceedingly short bursts he did, anyway. If Barney's set that night lasted approximately 45 seconds in duration, including opening applause, bows, and the time the audience spent chucking wellies at him, then Humphrey would be the expert that they needed. What did he doodled this time? A cream cake. What a fantastic idea! Deciding to await his collection of fates by taking up residence at a window seat close to the round-the-clock buffet was the biggest problem when it came to him producing anything useful in the immediate future, except for the world's most decadent belch. 
The idea had been reasonably sound in that he was at least guaranteed witnesses whenever Louise finally caught up with him. But the cakes bore their own witness to the gluttony of a man under pressure. He returned to his window seat, completely empty-handed, which was a moral victory only for the people who were paid to come and clear the tables. The recommended daily calorific intake of three stout men awaited processing in a stomach that already had an appointment booked to have itself let out a couple of sizes. Pen in hand, he gazed out into the darkness. It was funny, he'd always promised Anthea a trip like this. On his own terms, naturally, which was why it had never become a reality. He'd envisaged them both gliding around a dance floor together, which would have been exceedingly difficult for the pair of them. But hell, if he could have kept his feelings to himself and jealously but silently coveted her ball gown, surely she would have had the decency not to be so uptight all the time and to let herself just go with the flow. They would have looked good together. Actually, they would probably have looked better together with him in the dress to start with, especially the way she danced. Or so she told him, for he'd never seen her dance anywhere at all. She was the most peculiar woman, right enough. Any other lady would have said or done whatever it took to get a trip like that out of a man. And Humphrey would have believed her, make no mistake. He would have pushed all reason and all available evidence to the back of his mind, and he would have booked it. He might even have brought those handcuffs along. They would have been useful. On his own terms. And yet, Anthea had told him right from the off how embarrassed she would be and how self-conscious she would be and how it would be all his fault for having booked it. So, somewhere along the line, such a trip had been permanently shelved. What a very great shame. He was just contemplating making himself feel even more melancholic by reflecting upon how this current cruise had come, uncharacteristically for him, rather too late. And indeed, how much happier Barney would be able to make his ex-wife on so many levels not completely unrelated to that one when his focus shifted away from the gently moving waves he could see through the window to something even more impressive he could see reflected in it. He almost turned his head to get a proper look, but decided against it at the last moment. Instead, he squinted. As far as anyone else was concerned, he was still looking out into the darkness, but in reality he was trying to get a clearer reflective picture of that bit of paper the man at the next table had such a tight hold of. It was the image of a bra. There was no mistaking that. Or to put it into greater context, there was no mistaking that if you were Humphrey. After all, he'd seen more bras than most men, although perhaps not always from the same perspective. And what was more, he had seen that particular bra before. Anthea. She'd owned one just like that. Or at least, she'd stolen one just like that. From him, as a matter of fact. It had seemed reasonable at the time, given her rather more amply proportioned chest. Still, if he kept up his current regime of four cream cakes every hour around the clock, he would be able to fit into it better than she could again in almost no time at all. The bra was wrapped around a pretty significant chest, which he definitely didn't recognise. But then he wouldn't do, would he? She always used to turn the ruddy light out on him. No, he must have been suffering from the effects of a sugar high of some kind. Fine, the bra may well have been similar to one Anthea wore, but there was no way Jose, on God's green earth, in a month of Sundays, on anybody's Nelly, or on anybody's life at all, that a complete stranger would be wandering round the food court 
carrying a photograph of his ex-wife's cleavage. There. Reduced to first principles, that was very much the end of that. Perhaps he'd not yet had enough sugar. Maybe that was the problem. Before he could make his way back to the ghetto to immediately remedy that situation, he became aware of someone standing beside him. As he turned his head, he felt the hairs on the back of his neck slowly begin to rise, joined in that action by several other parts of his body. His eyes, having initially found themselves at the same level as the crotch of his mysterious visitor, rose half-heartedly in search of some positive identification. Humphrey himself, spurred on by what his eyes had reported back to him, rose from his chair and stood silently. And he really was going to have to prioritise the purchase of that new underwear. Urgently. Louise had finally found him. With some concern, he realised that the man with the bra fetish had now vanished from the scene, leaving the nearest witnesses to their imminent showdown, two busboys who were attending to their duties what may as well have been a hundred miles away. Instinctively, he pulled the back of his chair towards him. Louise assumed he was being chivalrous, which of course he was, sort of. In the world of improvisation, a chair like that could be used for chivalry, support or self-defence. She sat down in his chair and began to cast an eye over the sum total of his creative writing efforts. Understandably, that didn't hold her attention for very long. Coffee. That would be a good idea. He'd just nip off and get some. How far away was Kenya? I have to say, you look positively gorgeous in that tuxedo. It was coming to something, it really was, when a bloke got more comment for donning a dinner jacket than he did for throwing on a skirt. Only in Humphrey's dysfunctional little world could that sort of thing really happen. He wasn't very impressed by a compliment like that either. Using a bit of logic that Anthea had taught him, plus some very basic maths, it seemed obvious, putting two and two together, that the compliment hadn't even been aimed at him. It was the suit. He looked gorgeous in that suit. Nobody had ever said he was gorgeous when he wasn't in that suit. Therefore, it was the suit that was gorgeous, not him. He would have to take it off then, at the first opportunity. Just as soon as he had safely negotiated his escape from Louise. And once they were on different sides of a locked door. She had no excuses, except for a rather disturbing tendency to open her mouth and let it talk, without a ten-second delay. Her own cardinal rules for getting men on her side, for getting men to do precisely what she wanted them to do, had gone for a ball of chalk there, with just a handful of ill-chosen words. It was true, he did look gorgeous, and he did look particularly gorgeous dressed like Cary Grant. But even as Cary Grant, he'd still look gorgeous, and that was where she'd gone wrong, by not telling him that at the time. Humphrey stole a glance back in Louise's direction. However unwelcome her compliment had been, it was still more than he'd so far said to her. He felt compelled now to offer her some kind of praise with regard to her own personal appearance, even though it would be horribly insincere for him to do so. She was sensible enough to be able to cope with nice things being said about her looks, unlike Anthea. The only trouble was, at that precise moment, she looked like she'd been dragged out of a car wreck. She was dishevelled and scruffy, Nothing like the way she'd appeared the last time he'd set eyes on her. She must have been to the gym or something. That would be the only reasonable explanation for the flushed cheeks and her blouse being buttoned up all wrongly like that. 
Unless she'd been required to get out of some body shaping all-in-one underwear within the confines of a small toilet cubicle. Because that sort of stuff really could be a bugger to get in and out of. Harry Houdini would have struggled with a showstopper like that one. That was an even better explanation because it completely eliminated from the scene the remnants of any exercise-related endorphins for which she might just consider him to be a handy release. He had lingered rather too long over there next to the semi-skimmed, he realised that. She would realise it too, and the fact that he was scared of her. No, perhaps not scared of her. That wasn't quite the right word. Terrified. That was more like it. He could have stayed there happily pouring coffees all night for hundreds of invisible people, had not a team of invisible wild horses accepted his silent challenge and begun to drag him back over there. People had walked a prison green mile in less time than it seemed to take him to get back to that table. A brisk walking pace would have put most people a good way along Blackpool's Golden Mile in less time than it seemed to take him to get back to that table. At least she had actually seen him stop, quite legitimately, in order to pick up that chap's photograph. It was so kind of him to have left that behind. And that bra really did look awfully familiar. Louise took a look at it, then looked at him, and then turned the image over and put it to one side. She didn't want any other distractions, not when she was trying to have a sensible grown-up conversation with him. Not that she needed to be too concerned that he might have been lusting after the woman in that photograph. A woman with boobs that were being beckoned aggressively by the forces of gravity, and whose bra straps could almost be seen waving a white flag of surrender. It did allow her a nice little way back to discussing his embarkation ensemble, however, and it was vitally important that she got him back on side again by mentioning that. What happened to that absolutely beautiful outfit you had on when you came aboard? It really suited you. Now what was wrong? Well, I thought after that little episode with my father, I really ought to disguise myself. And let's face it, he'd never think to look for me dressed like this. Oh no, Michael would be the subject of the conversation now. That would be far too dangerous. She couldn't be having that. You haven't got very far with your plans, I see. No, well, I wasn't really sure what you wanted from me. She detected the presence of a comment that could have meaning on quite a number of levels, but when she looked at him, he was busily carrying on with his doodles. He was talking about the show, that was all. When she told him she was hoping for great things from him, she was also talking about the show. Only when she was a bit more specific and actually mentioned needing a great deal of his help did she move quite a number of her hopes and her dreams into an all-purpose, split-level comment. As far as her entertainment responsibilities went, the news was indeed grave. She was waiting on an update later in the morning as to the condition of her big band, but as things stood, she was down to a cat weasel and a private sponge. Now, obviously, Jeremiah had worked wonders on this trip already, so she was confident he wouldn't let her down. Private sponge, though, how much responsibility could she realistically expect him to soak up? Humphrey looked unimpressed. That was not a good sign. She was dumping all her problems on him again. It was school, all over again. It was university, all over again. It was every difficult moment she had ever faced in her life, all over again. He was going to end up hating her, all over again. Humphrey was distinctly unimpressed. Not with the situation, but with the coffee. If that was from Kenya, then so was he. 
As far as the situation was concerned, he was absolutely in his element. Louise was in trouble. Her life literally depended on him. All right, so that may have been a touch of hyperbole. It was probably complete hyperbolics, actually. Nobody's life depended on anything she was asking him to say or do at all. Fine. But she needed him. She'd probably broken some mysterious code of conduct advocated by the sisterhood, too, by making herself look hapless and hopeless and helpless. He hadn't seen such a classic doe-eyed expression since the last time he tried to convince Barney to find a less sadistic form of entertainment career path. But her sacrifice was definitely appreciated. Was there any bigger and more willing sucker anywhere in the world than a man who had a woman who needed him? And he had two. Even if one of them would sooner have ripped her own tongue out than admit that she needed him for anything other than a convenient place to park the blame for everything. Louise watched as he slowly doodled the name of his ex-wife on his piece of paper. It was not difficult to get into his mind, although she desperately hoped she was mistaken. He obviously still loved Anthea. His pen was held lightly, his strokes with it were soft. He had taken the time to carefully colour in each letter, and he'd even added a little heart to provide some sort of cushion for the word. Had he hated her, it would have been a completely different story, with holes torn in the paper and the pen nearly snapped in half. Damn it, how could he still love her? Humphrey stopped drawing. He hadn't even realised he'd been drawing. Such was the nature of his doodling habit. What he'd produced was really quite beautiful, though. At least, he certainly thought so. He could only assume that he'd been thinking about Anthea while he was doing it, which was an easy assumption to make, given what he had drawn, and the fact that she was never very far away from his thoughts. With the exception of whatever he'd been thinking about that really rather horrendous day in Cardiff. Even then, though, she hadn't been far away. Thank goodness. The thoughts of her in the next 24 hours would be difficult and horribly painful. Still, it would be him getting hurt and not her, so that was manageable. More than manageable. It was necessary. She did need him. He didn't care what kind of lame excuses she might have come up with to try to disguise that fact. She needed him. She needed him to make her happy. And the only way he could possibly do that was to let her go. And the only way he could possibly do that was to take this show by the scruff of its neck, drag Anthea out of her complacency and make her see Barney for what he was. Oh, for God's sake, no, that would never do it. He was even more hopeless than Humphrey. No, she would have to see Humphrey as the man she thought she wanted. I'll certainly do my best for you, Lou. She didn't doubt that. It was unfortunate, tragic even, that he still loved Anthea. It was as incomprehensible to Louise as quantum physics or how a car engine works or why grey hairs kept sprouting up out of nowhere in the most inconvenient of places. Never mind, though. It was something she'd faced before and survived. And this time she had a lot more options at her disposal. Humphrey was going to help her. He had to help her. Beyond that one solid fact, anything was possible. Can I just get this straight in my head? You are giving Barney and I a free reign with this show. You don't care what we do, right? Well, within reason... But it does have to have a 70s or an 80s thing going on. 
At the moment, all I can offer you on that score is that your audience will largely consist of people in their 70s and 80s. That wasn't so bad. An elderly audience would be less likely to be able to hear Barney in the first place, if he did happen to get carried away in all the excitement and try to sing something. And he'd also be able to get a pretty decent lead on them when they formed a mob and came after him with their zimmers. Besides, people of that age would be grateful just to have somewhere to sit down and relax for an hour or two. It was a great pity they were constrained by those two decades, because the 40s would have been a much better bet. All those parallels he could have drawn on, what with all the fear and the terror and the awful noise going on all around them. And the Blitz couldn't have been a barrel of laughs either. Anyway, you already know what your man's going to be doing, don't you? Is that what he told her on the phone? Wasn't it funny how Lies always had a habit of coming back to bite you on the arse? I mean, surely it's just a question of padding things out a bit, H. With what, though? You just told me all the performers are heaving their guts out. You'll still have Jeremiah. He's old school, him. You can rely on him. That's true. It looks like we'll have to rely on a bit of audience participation as well, then, in that case. Louise didn't look very impressed with that offering. The real reason their relationship had never been consummated was summed up very nicely in that expression she had on her face at that moment. Thank God his father had interfered with his 40 notes all those years ago and given him a much better excuse, though. Do you mean karaoke? He hadn't meant that at all, although it was an idea which did deserve some consideration. Provided Barney was bound, gagged and then thrown overboard before the opening note of New York, New York could blast its way into existence. No, it wouldn't do to potentially drown the poor bloke. And it did seem like a waste of everyone's efforts. And besides, he may as well just chuck him straight into Anthea's cabin in that condition and she'd probably kill him off anyway. You know, that wouldn't be a bad idea. It would be a bit rough on Barney. As would she, in all probability. But if she could finally see the damage her extraordinarily dominant double-bed delectations could do to someone else, then Humphrey himself might finally be let off the hook. More to the point, he might finally be able to do things his way for a change. She'd be sorry then. Oh, yes. He'd have her begging him to forgive her. On her knees. By crikey. Because if you are talking about karaoke, I'm not sure the auditorium has the right sort of acoustics for that. Besides, it's been tried before, and believe me, there are only so many different versions of Danny Boy and the Green Green Grass of Home that an average elderly audience will put up with. Humphrey put his pen to his lips, then took the end into his mouth and began sucking on it. He was blatantly stealing one of her best moves. He took the pen from his lips and began to tap it on the table, sliding his fingers down to the base of it, an action he repeated several times. That was another one of her best moves. When he took the pen in both hands and began to slide it in and out of each fist, she had nothing of any value left to offer. And she was feeling distinctly uncomfortable to boot. Finally, having rounded up whatever thoughts had been preoccupying him so provocatively, Humphrey committed them all to his piece of paper. He wrote quickly and in small letters, which was a fairly accurate depiction of his best moves, if Louise had only known what she was looking for. Oh, I'm not talking about your average audience participation, Lou. Nothing as dreary as that. He carried on writing. Now was the time. It had to be. 
You know, Humphrey, I would do absolutely anything for you. That's great. There are one or two things I'm going to need, as a matter of fact. You haven't got an electric chair or two anywhere on board, have you? Oddly enough, no. And a list of his ruddy prop requirements was not quite what she'd been after. The first attempt at starting this most difficult and embarrassing of conversations had failed, but all was not yet lost. He hadn't a clue what she wanted to say to him. She could simply try and get things moving in the right direction again in a couple of minutes. No big deal. It wasn't as if time was of the essence or anything. I never went through your escape plan with you, did I? In the event of you suddenly going down. He blinked at her, the living embodiment of Mr Slow. That's not very likely though, is it? Me going down? No, it wasn't. Not unless he actually listened to what she was trying to say to him. You know, it's interesting that you were pretending that Barney was your son yesterday. Still, it happens to us all. What does? There he was again, Mr Slow. Where was Mr Rush when you needed him? She took a deep breath, wished herself luck and went for it. Well, you know how it is, H. We women get to a certain age and then we have to reassess our priorities. We want to settle down and build a home. Our careers, they don't seem quite so important anymore. I mean, look at the shambles of this show, for instance. I ought to be tearing my hair out over it, but I'm not. That showed a distinct lack of faith in his organisational skills. Whatever that show was going to consist of, there was no way it would ever be a shambles. It could well end up being an unmitigated disaster, but it would never, ever be remembered as a shambles. He was going to put far too much effort into the thing for that to ever happen. Did Anthea never reach that? Certain age? Anthea? She had to be joking. Time was expected to drag its heels as far as Anthea's age was concerned. By the time she would be able to admit to being of a certain age, they would be nailing the lid down on her coffin. If you could spare the time, H, I really would appreciate your input. My advice? In an official capacity, do you mean? If you like. It seemed as though his initial fears had been quite groundless. Reading between the lines, things seemed obvious. She had been clouded across the chops by a sudden attack of maternal instinct. With the greatest respect to her, there would have been no shortage of men who could assist her in that dream. Being a modern woman, she would be trying to go it alone as much as possible, and she would be wanting some advice from him as to how she could radically adjust her lifestyle. And that was that. She could have picked a better moment, one where he was not quite so preoccupied with events on a much grander scale. But she was a friend of his. Despite the passage of more than 13 years without contact, he would still have described her as his best friend. She surpassed even Anthea in that description, since any friendship he and his ex-wife had enjoyed had become horribly mired in the sort of nonsense that seemed to infiltrate even the happiest of marriages. He could say anything to Louise, and she to him. He put his pen down, put his fingers together and rested his chin upon them, smiling at her to signify that she now had his undivided attention. Something about her response to that worried him ever so slightly. Had he been a freshly made sandwich set down on a platter beside a half-starved maniac, 
He might have expected to be looked upon like that. It was odd. Odd enough even to have put him on his guard, had he not already decided he was in no immediate danger and dismissed his security team for the night. I want a baby, H. It was damn difficult trying to keep a clear head in order to help her properly, what with all the alarm bells going off in his head. Or were they somewhere outside of it? Louise evidently couldn't hear them, and nor could anybody else. She wanted a baby. He'd better write that down. It would help him to think more clearly. OK. Well, without being too graphic, why don't you tell me how far advanced your plans are for how you might try to achieve this? That depends what you mean, really. Obviously, I'm not married, and my work is not exactly conducive to being a normal, everyday mother. I've got some money put away, but all that is the logical stuff, and that isn't even relevant. I want a baby. There was a barely suppressed urgency in her tone that made him wish he was still only listening to the alarm bells. He hadn't listened to them, though, had he? He'd heard them. He'd heard them and paid no attention to them, and now it was too late. He'd better just avoid all eye contact with her and carry on writing. Hey, carry on writing. His father, Kenneth, could star in that. I want a baby, and I want you to be the one who makes me pregnant. And he was just going to keep on writing. How big was the paper? Never mind, the table would do. Must keep on writing. How big was the table? The floor. He could stare at the floor. He could study every single detail of the pattern and the texture. Humphrey? Mm-hmm. Did you hear what I said? If there could have been anything else she could possibly have said to him that might just have been confused with that quite unbelievable statement, then he might well have pretended he hadn't heard it. As it was, it would have been cruel and insulting to make her repeat it. He could well have fainted on the spot, too. He cleared his throat, and at the second attempt, he spoke to her. Why me? The fact that he'd asked her that and had not run screaming back to his cabin gave her an immense amount of encouragement. She'd been haunted for years by the prospect of never having children. That was after popping pills for years that were specifically designed to protect her from them in the first place. Every month that passed by where she was unable to go swimming or wear white trousers for five days was a growing insult to her feelings. She could hide her loneliness well, even laughing and joking convincingly whenever she had to. But no matter how many men she spent time with, the simple truth was, she didn't want them. Humphrey. That was who she'd always wanted. She'd even managed to bury those feelings deeply over the years deriving some comfort from the thought of him being happy, albeit without her. Finding out he was divorced had brought her feelings to the surface so quickly that they needed urgent treatment for the bends. Well, you are the nicest man I've ever known. And hell's bells had she known a few. That's a really beautiful thing to say. I wouldn't expect you to pay anything or feel obliged to me in any way, I'm quite prepared to look after myself, ourselves, whatever. I mean, I wouldn't want to marry you or anything. That stupid, nervous little laugh at the end merely highlighted the trail of insincerities in that statement. She would have married him right there, right then, even though she knew very well he was still in love with Anthea 
and that to do so would ensure she herself would be horribly and irreparably hurt. It was no great consolation for her to know in her heart that he would never, ever have even contemplated doing that to her. Besides, I can marry anyone. You wouldn't believe the number of people who would give their eye teeth to marry me. Oh, I think I would. They stared into each other's eyes. Humphrey didn't even notice when the cake cabinet was cleared of all its contents. This really was a serious conversation. I love you, H. I've always loved you. There was a pause. I love you too. But she nodded, anticipating very astutely where his words were heading. I know you're not in love with me. I know. That's fine. You wouldn't even have to think of me. You could just pretend I was Anthea. It wouldn't matter. What a daft and desperate thing for her to say. Of course he would have to think of her. She would deserve nothing less. Hang about. That did seem to imply that he was actually giving serious consideration to this harebrained scheme of hers. He could only assume that she must have succeeded in appealing to his vanity somehow. It was interesting what one or two compliments could do to the common sense and free will of a man like him. She was clearly labouring under one or two misapprehensions, though, the like of which would somehow taint the label of perfection under which she seemed to have him filed. I'm pretty old-fashioned, Lou. In my world, people have to be married for things like that to happen. And you and I... It's all right. You don't love me enough to want to get married to me. No, that's not it at all. If anything, I love you too much to want to get married to you. We haven't seen each other for years. There's such a lot you don't know about me. I know you're divorced, you wear women's clothes, and you're a thoroughly shameless attention seeker. Don't tell me you've become a serial killer as well since I last spent time with you. Why did he have the distinct impression that confessing to being a serial killer might have been more socially acceptable than any of the other character traits on her impromptu yet alarmingly accurate little list? There was no way to break this to her gently. Darling, I don't think you would ever believe what an appalling lover I am. I mean, I'm talking about the actual mechanics of the physical act itself now. I'm hopeless. Anthea could tell you. And that was on a good day, with the wind behind him, with perhaps the kind attentions of a phenomenal amount of alcohol. Now you're just being modest. Anthea swore to me that every word of that article about you was true. Precisely. Could there be a crueler punishment? Destined to roam through life, raising hopes and expectations, only to leave people like Louise hideously disappointed. It was like marriage itself, but on a more freelance basis. May I remind you that I made Anthea's life a living hell? I mean, why don't you just go and ask her? You don't think Anthea had some rather unrealistic expectations? That did seem a bit rich, coming from her. Still, she was letting the sisterhood down again and showing him some sympathy. That was worth clinging on to at any rate, in the absence of a note from home excusing him from any kind of physical activities. Anyway, you haven't got to decide now. She left that one hanging in the air and began to take a great interest in that photograph sitting beside them. There was a lot to be said for any woman who could abandon herself to the moment like that, with no regard for how ridiculous she might well have looked. Happiness. Why was it so elusive? 
A person could waste her whole life trying to find it, only to discover, far too late, that she'd been looking for it in the wrong sort of places entirely. Supposing, by some miracle, Humphrey did offer to help her, what then? A child would need stability. Stability meant a job, but not the job she was in, the one she was so good at. It meant working long hours at a job she would probably loathe, but which she would do gladly because it happened to fit the hours of whatever childcare she could find that she could afford. That didn't sound terribly appealing, and it did seem to somewhat negate the purpose of having a baby in the first place. Of course, she could always get married. What she told Humphrey had been no exaggeration. She'd had quite an impressive collection of gentlemen plighting their troth over the years. But sadly, not the one she really wanted. That was the way the pursuit of happiness worked, though. It promised you so much, and yet delivered nothing but enforced compromise and confusion. She envied the woman in that photograph. What about Anthea? Well, I wasn't thinking of getting her involved, H. No, of course not, but what if she were to find out? But darling, you're divorced now. That sort of thing is none of her business. It felt slightly weird, using the same seductive move on Humphrey as she'd used on Michael. The trouble was, she knew that it was a winner. In honour of such a potentially life-changing conversation, she had varied it ever so slightly. Instead of her fingers crawling up towards his bow tie, they had stayed on the horizontal plane and had merely crawled up as far as his cufflinks. Cufflinks. There was nothing she appreciated more than a man in cufflinks, apart from a man she'd successfully managed to get out of them. From the way Humphrey's hands stiffened, she knew she was having an effect on him. The fertility of his imagination could yet prove more than a match for hers. Correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't these things somewhat time-specific? The moon, his enemy of old, Anthea's impressively punctual partner in crime, fairly winked at him through the window. Yes, that's true. And? And I'm getting off tomorrow. He would, if he played his cards right. Had that come out loud? Would he? Hell's teeth, what was it about this man? There's always now. It was lucky for him that she had pretty devastating reflexes. If she'd been any slower in jumping up and catching hold of him, he would have slumped straight to the floor. Or maybe tonight. Tonight would work. This time she felt it necessary to put his head between his knees. Tonight would be perfect. He would be on a high from all that adrenaline. Whether the show was a success or a disaster, there would have to be a good deal of adrenaline. While she thought about it, she hadn't even volunteered her own services for that show yet. That wasn't exactly sending out the right message in any conceivable language, and nor was it taking the fullest advantage of the opportunity to spend some of the day in close and legitimate contact with him. Maybe I could perform something for you later. I'm very talented. I would so like to be on board. It's going to be a very thrilling ride. I reckon I could probably keep going for five minutes or so. I mean, if that suits you. Five minutes? She was already setting the bar for the qualifying rounds ridiculously high. She was in for some massive disappointments, as well as ones of rather more Lilliputian dimensions. Oh, by the way, I was talking about performing in the show. Put me down for the show, that's what I meant. I knew that. 
He was so relieved he could have kissed her, which was clearly not going to be the safest way to proceed. He could have, though. He could have kissed her easily. And he could have taken her to bed even more easily. If it hadn't have been for Anthea and the show and this other rather amazing development. He needed time to think. I can't tell you what I'm going to be doing in those five minutes. It's a surprise. Although if you still know me at all, you can probably guess. He was hopeless at cryptic puzzles. And in this particular case, he really didn't want to know the answer. If she was still talking about the show, then he wanted her contribution to be a complete surprise. And if she was talking about seducing him in some way, then his own contribution would more than likely be the complete surprise, and not in any kind of a good way either. His voice sounded croaky, like he was 15 again. We really ought to concentrate on the show. You mean you're turning me down? And to think he'd always assumed it was only Anthea who could twist his words so expertly into some new and completely unintended alternative meaning. He hadn't turned her down at all. He'd neither said nor done anything of the kind to even suggest that. Okay, apart from almost fainting. Oh, and he probably should have done more to establish whether she really was talking about a five-minute performance in front of an audience, or whether she was starting a round of 20 questions with a view to discussing a five-minute performance in front of a naked and overexcitable Humphrey. But nothing, absolutely nothing, had been discounted. He wasn't exactly thrilled by her original idea as it had been presented to him, but the details of this kind of thing were probably open for negotiation. The fact that it clearly meant so much to her meant automatically that he couldn't have dismissed it anyway. Even if he'd wanted to. Where had all those cakes gone? How was he expected to think all this through properly without licking the inside out of a cream bun or nibbling all the icing from a fondant fancy? Turning her down indeed. Ha! Huh. That's fine then, Humphrey. That's absolutely fine. If you won't help me, there are other options. They're not ideal by any means, but then who cares, eh? Certainly not you. But then why would you? You don't give a stuff about me. You never have. That's fine. Well, for your information, I met a very nice gentleman earlier on this evening, and I'm quite sure he would be willing to help me. He's charming and successful, and he thinks the world of me. And I might just go up to his place right now and ask him, what do you think about that then? What, apart from having all the proof he needed that she only really wanted him, which, dare he even think it, now gave him the upper hand in all negotiations, did she mean? I think he's a fantastically lucky man, Lou, and you can tell him I said so. He tried to ignore the impression she seemed to be doing of a fish gasping desperately for air, and simply picked up his pen and carried on writing counting silently to ten as he did so. With Anthea, it had always needed more than that. Anthea could spend days and days in the wrong, rather than flinch and offer him the merest semblance of an apology. But then she was practically a professional. For someone like Louise, who wanted something like that from him, a count of ten would be plenty. And so it proved, when even his fastest counting saw her get no further than a seven on the humility scale. She bent down beside him and rested her hand upon his, stroking his cufflinks as she did so. I didn't mean any of that, H. I'm so sorry. I don't know why I said any of that. The smile he gave her was the one she would use for all future reference.
From that moment on, whenever she thought of him, she would remember that smile. It summed up everything about him, his kindness and his affability, even that faint little chocolate moustache, the remnants of his battle with heaven only knew how many shoe pastry eclairs. Don't worry, sweetheart. Any time a woman uses that tone of voice with me, it just goes in one ear and straight out the other. I never paid attention to anything Anthea used to yell at me, and I was certainly not about to waste my time listening to you. That was supposed to be a compliment, by the way, despite the fact that it sounded absolutely nothing like one. Oh, God! He just called her sweetheart. He just smiled at her, and he had just called her sweetheart. And now he was winking at her. He just winked at her, and he just smiled at her, and he had just called her sweetheart. Why don't you go and get some sleep? I want you on your toes tomorrow. Wait, he hadn't meant that in quite the way it had sounded. Then again, though, never say never. Yes, I, I think I'd like that. To get some sleep now, I mean, not the toe thing. Humphrey was thoroughly enjoying this. She was tripping over her words and shyly avoiding his gaze. She was putty in his hands. Theoretically, then, he could try out some of those lines he had been accumulating over the past 14 years. The ones Anthea had never heard, nor given any indication whatsoever that she might ever have been impressed by. It's funny that we're talking about toes, you know. Did you know... Sometimes a woman's toes curl up really tightly when she's, how can I put this, particularly excited. He wasn't absolutely sure that was true, what he'd said. In a former life, though, he thought it might have been, before Anthea. In Humphrey's limited yet frenetic lovemaking experience since meeting her, Anthea had been so inanimate in general that she could quite comfortably have carried off the wearing of a mortuary toe tag. Whether the toe to which that tag would have been attached had been any more mobile than the rest of her was a secret that would, for the time being, have to remain between his ex-wife, the bedpost, and the set of custom-made blackout curtains she'd had specially made for their bedroom. He got to his feet once more and took Louise's hand. She seemed to have regressed to the age of about 15, although that would have been a normal 15-year-old's life and not the one that she'd actually lived. He had the power to do that? Just by, what, looking at her? Smiling at her? No wonder every man who met her fell in love with her. Apart from him, naturally. Just once, he might just have liked to follow the crowd with regard to that one. Looking deeply into her eyes, he raised her hand to his lips and very, very gently placed a kiss upon it. It was a slick thing to do, all right. Very smooth. He'd seen it in a film somewhere. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Was that it? Sleep well? That was rubbish for a start. He didn't want her to sleep well at all. He wanted her to be tossing and turning all night long, thinking unswervingly about him. She looked fit to burst over there. Oh boy, this was such fun. She was a mess now in every way imaginable, and it was all down to him. Well, most of it. What on earth she'd been doing to get so scruffy in the first place was still a complete mystery. The all-in-one girdle, that was still the favourite theory. Would she sleep in that? Would she hug herself tightly and imagine it was him that was squeezing her? Would she even try to go to sleep straight away? There were other things she could be doing that would ensure that she still thought of nobody but him.
Lots of questions and no immediate answers. The most important question of all being, how was he supposed to concentrate on Barney's cobblers when he had all this other stuff going on? And why would he even want to? Barney's cobblers would very soon no longer be his concern. Whereas Louise, well, what she was proposing would make him responsible for her for whatever remained of his life. So this was what it meant to be a man. He was glad he had at least dressed appropriately for the occasion. Just tell me one thing, H. That sounded like an interesting game. If he played along, maybe she would tell him where all the cakes had gone to. He decided against giving her a cheery, name it, or a sultry and smooth, anything you have but to ask me. They both sounded decidedly cheesy, and more to the point, they were yet more lies. There were a whole host of things he didn't much fancy telling her, from the fact that he was still not in love with her, to the fact that her shoes were on the wrong feet. That was odd. Why would she have had to take her shoes off as well? There couldn't have been too many activities for which a person had to remove their footwear, and which subsequently left a person looking the way she did. Strange. Anyway, he played it reasonably safe and simply smiled at her again. Please, just tell me there's a chance. Oh, there's more than a chance. Provided that we do things my way. I should say that would be my pleasure entirely, H. At last, somebody finally understood him. Anthea? There was no immediate response. There was no particular reason why there should have been, given that it was just a little after three in the morning, except that Sandra knew very well that her sister was awake over there. In fact, she'd been under the distinct impression that it was Anthea who'd been trying to wake her up, what with all the huffing and puffing she'd been doing. She absolutely would have woken Sandra up too, if her sister had actually been asleep, but she'd been forced instead to spend the past hour watching Anthea sporadically sitting up, furiously rearranging her blankets, giving a sigh of epic proportions, and then crashing back down to meet the mattress. It was like being on a humpback whale watch. Anthea! What? Are you awake? No. Bugger off. So, she was still in her bad mood then. Of course she was. She was always in some form of bad mood. It was merely a question of scale with a woman like her. At least she'd toned the ire down a bit from that which had greeted Sandra on the wrong side of that Steinway. Anthea had completely misunderstood things. Well, no, in actual fact she hadn't. She had figured out, in all of its gory detail, precisely what Sandra had been up to. Hardly a difficult thing to do, since all of the evidence she'd required had come straight from her sister's own lips. She could have shouted at her, that would have been reasonable. She could have aimed a punch at her, Sandra would have deserved it. Instead, though, Anthea had chosen a punishment far, far worse than either of those. She had stopped speaking to her, the actual silence being only one small part of it. Sandra had had to contend with the hurt looks and the poignant staring, and now there's damn sighing as well. That was it, though. Enough was enough. Anthea! You've just woken me up, Sandra. What do you want? Lying bitch. I'm sorry I told you about Humphrey. I, I can't think why I did that. Anthea could. It was because her sister was a spiteful, vindictive witch. 
and a jealous one at that. Did he say sorry to you? Who? Humphrey, of course. Oh, right. Humphrey. There it was again, that little burst of adrenaline at the very sound of his name. Anthea hugged herself ever so slightly, although that was the closest to her that even she was permitted to get. Her silent treatment had broken more people than the rack and the thumbscrews combined, but it had never affected Sandra before. An apology, even one as decidedly disingenuous as that half-hearted little number, was uncharted territory as far as she was concerned. It hadn't revealed very much, though, which she had presumably thought Anthea would be too thick to even notice. No, he didn't. Humphrey did not apologise to me, and more to the point, I wasn't expecting him to. This was good. Between the two of them, they could probably be made to average a Humphrey every five minutes or so. Even more frequently than that, if she could somehow overcome her own boredom and disgust for her sister in order to actually engage her in some kind of meaningful conversation. Anthea, what now? What do you think of Barney? There it was again, that little burst of adrenaline at the very sound of his name. This was good. Between the two of them, they could probably be made to average a Barney every five minutes or so. Even more frequently than that, if she could somehow overcome her own boredom and disgust for her sister, in order to actually engage her in some kind of meaningful conversation. What do you think of him? I think he's lovely. Don't you? Anthea sat up in bed. She needed her wits well and truly about her for this one. Truthfully, she'd found Barney to be surprisingly charming, if rather shy, company. He'd made her feel attractive, and he'd made her feel safe. There hadn't been any thunderbolts from a roaming, trigger-happy Cupid or anything like that. He hadn't left her wanting to tear his clothes off or wishing that he would help her rip off all hers. There hadn't really been much in the way of chemistry between them at all. In that respect, it could have been said that he was not quite as exciting as Humphrey. But on the plus side, she hadn't, even for one moment, felt like killing him, which did very much give Barney the upper hand over her ex-husband. Without Sandra's interference, which had then led to a meeting with a devastatingly attractive Humphrey for which Anthea had been in no way prepared, she and Barney may well have still been roaming that boat even at that moment. That cow was the one who'd ruined it, not Humphrey. In which case, it was time for one or two gloves to come off. Sandra, I have to say I think he's just gorgeous. Who? Barney, of course. I thought I'd be quite cynical after what Humphrey put me through, but I really found myself being swept away by him. Who? Barney, of course. I think he could be the one, Sandra. At first it sounded as though she'd said, who, yet again, but it quickly transpired that the noise had actually been a sharp intake of breath. Through the darkness, Anthea was able to enjoy the accompanying gesture, an exaggerated clutch of her heart with both hands, which would have won Gloria Swanson an Oscar nomination. Yes! She had finally got one over on her. First thing in the morning, she was going to buy herself a diary and record that day for posterity. What about Humphrey? What about him? What would you say if I told you that I know, for absolute certain, 
that Humphrey still loves you. Anthea was vaguely aware of her own sharp intake of breath there. She attributed it to hearing the sound of his name, nothing more. Any dissenting voices in her head were brought quickly into line by a quickly imposed, non-negotiable three-line whip. I'd say you were just jealous, Sandra. Jealous? Jealous of what? You? And then she laughed. It was a cruel and mocking laugh, and it was not the first time Anthea had heard it. It could have been track one on the personal soundtrack album of her own miserable childhood. Whenever she tried to be fashionable or had tried to be part of any crowd going, that was the sound she had heard. Whenever she'd foolishly mentioned to Sandra the names of the men she found attractive, that was the sound she had heard. Hannibal Smith and Wurzel Gummidge were no more embarrassing to admit to liking than David Hasselhoff and Gordon the Gopher, for heaven's sake. So Robin Day, on the other hand, well, all right, she'd reluctantly had to give her that one. Anthea had almost never liked anybody normal, Humphrey and his vast array of women's wear included. Barney was her chance to do just that, though, except that she managed to upset him and had then left him looking forlorn and abandoned in the corridor outside his own cabin. For the life of her, she still couldn't even remember what she'd said to him to upset him like that in the first place. Still, never mind. If he liked her as much as he'd appeared to, always assuming it was not some fiendish plot of Humphrey's to get her back and ruin her life once and for all, then he would just have to make the first move. And if, by some infinitesimally small chance, Sandra had been telling her the truth about Humphrey, then he would just have to make the first move too.